Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off, you know what I'm about to ask you. I need you to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. The Tortoise Shack has no ads, no sponsors, but relies entirely on listeners to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. So if you get something out of what we do, please give something back. It'll only take you a couple of minutes, but it'll help carve out that bit of space we need to continue to have those conversations that we don't hear enough of across other mainstream platforms. Thanks so much for the support, the feedback, reviews, subscribing, sharing, letting people know. But I'd really urge you to click that link at the top of the pod and help keep this show on the road. Thanks again and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and delighted to be joined on the podcast today by an old friend, fellow activist who's been around a long time like myself. It's Professor of Green Political Economy in Queen's University, John Barry, who is speaking um, at the Frederick Douglas Civil Rights Conference in Wexford this coming weekend. Um, John, it's great to have you on Reboot. I can't believe I've left it so long before having you on. Delighted to be here, Rory. It's a bit like uh, we're putting the band back together. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. I was just trying to remember before you started, um, or before we started that, uh, trying to remember when we met and it probably was when uh, we were organising the anti-war, anti-Iraq war protests in 2003. No, it was, and it's almost like a, you know, terrible, we're still having to do this shit. You know, it's something that the activists, uh, particularly those listening, would recognise, you know, we just have to keep doing it again and again. Um, just to remind listeners that that um, demonstration against the war in Iraq, the illegal uh, war and occupation, in case people forget, there was no UN sanction for either the invasion or the occupation. But that brought 100,000 people onto the streets of Dublin. I remember it uh, really well. And I think that's probably the last time we, we physically met each other. So here we are again. And now we are again. Yeah. And what's happening in Palestine. Yeah, and, and it is. It was an incredible day. I remember it. Um, you know, just the sheer numbers that were on it. And, you know, you mentioned earlier there as well, you know, what, you know, God knows what impact it had. And I do think... You know, when we look at it, it's an important point to make that the demonstrations around the world, because it was part of a global demonstrations and a global movement, that subsequent to the Iraq war, you could argue that there was an element of reluctance of the US, for example, to enter war subsequently as quickly as they did, and the UK similarly. And in part, that was as a result of the public mobilizations and that process that happens within public mobilizations. And why I'm emphasizing this point right now is because it directly links to, I think, the role of the public in the current, um, just, you know, words can't describe what is happening to the people of Gaza right now, what is being done to the people of Gaza by Israel. Um, But the role of the public in shaping what happens, that we're not powerless, we can influence this. No, I think it, it, it's really important for people to realise, particularly given you and I are a bit old, uh, old in the tooth now as activists, that there's always an afterlife. So you may not get what you demanded at the immediate time, but it can shape the decision space, as it were, for the, the powers that be. And I definitely think there is 
an argument to be made that that anti-war uh, sentiment. I think there was like half a million people in London that was, you know, that was demonstrating all over the world against that war in Iraq. It probably did stay the hand of America in terms of being less gung ho in terms of entering into other conflicts. Uh, and it's that issue that you know we're now in a situation similarly. So you know, in terms of the anti-genocide, pro-Palestinian, pro-peace, pro-ceasefire. I mean, I never thought we'd reach the day where being pro-ceasefire was a radical position, that somehow you're an extremist for calling for, for peace. But they do have an influence, and we may want to get into it. I definitely think it influenced the Irish government's decision to you know, be the most vociferous, certainly in the European Union, in terms of calling out Israel uh, and calling for, for peace. So public power does matter. Um, even if you can't see it immediately, it does, as I say, shape the, the future decision space of, of governments. And, and I do think in terms of this as well, we know that Israel is, you know, it is, of course, it's watching um, what the international reaction is. Sure, they, like, we know that it's monitoring, uh, you know, TDs are saying that Israel is monitoring what they're saying and what they're doing. So, of course, it matters to them and it impacts on them. Every single person that speaks out publicly against it, that highlights it, they know, they are listening. Um, and ultimately, then, it, the the... The more important influences, of course, is on the US and the EU and what they're doing and how they then influence um, their response. And we know, and it's been said all the time, that the, you know, the public protests on the streets, the pressure in parliaments, we're seeing what South Africa are doing, you know, even that pressure in the doll this week, it all adds on pressure and, and adds to the, I think, the, the statement that is there that this is not okay and it has to stop. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we're lucky enough to live in a democracy. And of course, people should realise that democracy is not just about voting every couple of years if you can body our arse. It is also having the right to, to you know, to protest and to use non-parliamentary means to, um, you know, venture frustration and communicate to uh, a government. And it, it does matter. I mean, I think too often um, people think that, oh, democracy is voting. Uh, that's only a small part of it. And we may get into this when we come to talking about maybe the Greens and power and my own position um, on that in terms of using state power to empower communities, not just to see it in the normal state uh, processes. But, you know, resistance is not futile. It, it's fertile. Protest does have an impact, even though uh, at the time oh, you, you, you might think that it's just simply virtue signaling. You know, that's how opponents of many of the actions that you and I have taken over the last number of decades would see, it isn't. Um, it is about communicating anger, frustration, and ultimately that sense of injustice. I mean, that's the strongest kind of political sentiment that people have in terms of influencing their government. And, and clearly what's going on now is genocide. And it's not just you and me saying it. You know, the yeah. UN are coming out with this. You know, yeah. we have leadership being shown Certainly to a degree by Ireland where we haven't expelled the Israeli ambassador. Look what's happening in Colombia, for example. And that activist space enables people to see, well, hold on, why can't Ireland do what Colombia or South Africa uh, uh, you know, have done in terms of really putting the money where their mouth is, not just saying, yeah. but actually delivering on you know, uh, a, 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 a small, because uh, that's all it is, uh, expelling the Israeli ambassador is not going to stop the horror in, in Gaza, but it will certainly say that our government is really delivering on that activist slogan, not in our name. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was a real cowardly um, failure of our government not to, um, you know, support that motion and actually expel the Israeli ambassador. It, it's just, as you say, that we don't have many uh, ways in which as a country we can influence, but that absolutely would have been a very concrete one um, that we could do. And how, I just don't understand it, how when you look at, you know, the hospital... Um, you know, the babies, the children, like I, my four-year-old was jumping on the bed up and down this morning and all I could think about was the people who lost children in Gaza and the children in Gaza and how they must be every morning, you know, waking up and where do they get to jump up and down and where do they get to be children? And I just, I don't understand how there's a justification of this at any level and and particularly for Whatever about, you know, we know Israel and and its, its warped view and approach and the politics of it, but what there's no excuse for EU governments. There's no excuse for a US government um, standing over this now. No, and I think it was a really powerful statement by uh, a Pakistani representative to the UN, I think it was yesterday or the day before. People should go and look at it. It's only about two minutes, but basically calling out uh, the hypocrisy and duplicity of the US in terms of stating that they're concerned about Palestinian civilians. And essentially the Pakistani representative very eloquently in a very short space of time said, you do not get to stand in solidarity with Palestinian people while you're sending billions worth of armaments to to Israel. Uh, And it's the power of podcasts as we're doing or, or social media. Yes, I know it can be a toxic soup of of horror as well, but actually enables us to get a message across that the mainstream media, and I have to say, you know, watching RTE and particularly the BBC, I think it's been disgraceful the way mm-hmm. the mainstream media has has framed this uh, issue that is, you know, largely on, you know, I wouldn't say pro-Israeli, but they're not really calling out, hold on a minute, we can condemn Hamas for what they did. But we also have to understand the context. It doesn't come out of nowhere that these people just woke up one day and said, right, let's go and kill whatever it is over a thousand Israelis. I've actually, it's interesting to talk about the media. I've been, I watch Al Jazeera now every day. That's what I do. I put on Al Jazeera and they've been providing some really interesting in-depth analysis of it. Um, And it was interesting, there was someone making a point yesterday about Hamas and, and, you know, the RT coverage, the Irish Times coverage always says, you know, it's Hamas this, Hamas that. And the connotation is, this is terrorist XYZ. But they made the point, Hamas runs the yeah. infrastructure, the administration, everyone in Hamas is not a soldier, is not a, a, you know, a militant. There are a huge amount of people who are in Hamas who are administrators, who are, you know, working as, you know, civil administrators. And therefore, this kind you know, the, the need to understand these different parts to it. And, and similarly, they were, of course, you know, pointing out, you know, where is the evidence in terms of the hospital and... Um, and, you know, I just, you know, Israel bombed the hospital. And where is the evidence? Like, and again, it reminds me of back to the Iraq war and the the chemical, the, the you know, the chemical weapons. Where are they? And I, uh, but it, it, it really, the point you make there is a really good one. States can be terrorists, which is something that many in the mainstream media simply do not account. And so somehow what states do, it's legitimate war. They're defending themselves. States can be terrorists in the same way that Hamas is a state-like organization. You know, there, there isn't yes. a... That's part of the issue that Palestine is not a, an independent state. 
But what Hamas in Gaza, and obviously um, you know, in the West Bank, it's a slightly different story. Um, they are state-like entities, you know, and therefore we have to allow, well, if Hamas can be terrorists, well, equally then Israel can be terrorists in the same way we see it here in the North. The British government can be terrorists as well, and the British yeah. You know, but that's something the mainstream media does not want to go because that then raises the issue of ideology that, you know, that classic one person's terrorist, another person's freedom fighter and so on. And who gets to decide that? And what we're seeing now is that the mainstream media is positioning this Israel victim right to defend itself. Hamas horrible butchers based upon a fundamentalist ideology. And actually, you can say, hold on a minute, that doesn't compute in terms of what we're now seeing played out on, on our screens and on social media. Yeah, and, and what where I get the, the hope from is the way in which, uh, and it's interesting, as you mentioned, you know, the, the social media is such a paradox. It's such a, you know, it's destroying us as human beings and yet also is facilitating, you know, what we're trying to do in terms of communicating an alternative, you know, message and a viewpoint and, and does in its warped way allow an expression of a true humanity in the way in which, you know, you could see things that you would never be seeing, you know, the, the eye on Palestine, for example, what it's showing. And, and they are, you know, images that you don't see on the mainstream media. Like I've seen, you know, you've seen the just absolutely horrific, horrific, you know, children squashed under concrete, hanging out of buildings, been left there, left under rubble. But you wouldn't see that on the mainstream media. And then the other side of it is, that you also see the amount of people who are just like, this is wrong. And and the ordinary person going, my view is this is wrong. And and the politics is cut through, the ideology is cut through, the, the mainstream media is cut through for just this human expression. And that's where the hope is, I think. No, I have to completely agree in terms of, you know, don't just criticise the media, be the media. I think that's the, 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 been the mantra for podcasts such as yours. And I have to say, it's only in podcasts such as yours, um, you know, what, what, what Tony has been doing, where I've even heard the word kindness, care. I've heard the word compassion. I've not heard any of this in the mainstream media. And it's hard to do with the format. We have a longer period, you know, time, literally, that we can talk about these complex issues. But it, it, I, I agree with you that this is where hope can come from, where the common decency of people, which I always fundamentally believe in, otherwise you'd say you can give up and go home and crawl under your duvet. You've got to believe that ordinary people are decent. They recognize horror and injustice where it's presented to them. And it's only now through, I think, social media and podcasts such as this, that people get a sense, a real sense of what's actually going on. And the reaction is usually horror. Then it's a sense of care and compassion. Uh, but of course, what we need to do is to mobilize people in a sense of injustice because the care and compassion is an immediate response to something horrible that's happening. And Irish people, in particular because of our colonial history, we have a, a you know, we're always with the side of the underdog. But we have to move beyond the immediate response and say, okay, what are the structural issues here? And that's where you have to talk about politics and its com complexity. Um, and in the mainstream media, you know, speaking as a recovering politician, where, you know, my mantra, whenever I got onto the BBC up here, you had your five minutes. And I didn't care what I was asked. And I just gave them my, my, my three things. And that's why, for people listening, why politicians and other people on the mainstream media, where people scream, you didn't answer the question. But the reason is very simple, because often you don't get enough time to talk about all the things you're going to talk about. You have to get across your, you know, your three things, where at least in a podcast, in a long form, you can get into the depth of things and talk about the complexity 
while also talking about things like care and compassion, which you never hear in the mainstream media. Yeah, no, that's a really important point. And I think I'm watching a lot at the moment of uh, Gabor Mate. I don't know if you um, if you watch his stuff and he around trauma and he did a fascinating um, two hour uh, interview on Palestine and um, Israel. And of course, his own background is um, his grandparents were killed, uh, murdered in the Holocaust um, by Nazi Germany. And he gives a fascinating insight into, you know, trauma and how trauma becomes terror and how, you know, when it's not processed and, you know, the, you know, he spent a huge amount of time in Gaza and he went through the history of it. I really recommend people watch it. It's an interview on YouTube. Um, but just the whole other dimension that's absent, which is care. And I always think of, you know, Professor Kathleen Lynch in UCD, you know, one of my formative, you know, mentors and educators who put care and the ethics of care at the centrality of kind of her critique of neoliberalism. And I was always, there was something always struck profoundly with me, like kind of when I look through it, like where was this, you know, opposition that I have had to the system, you know, from when I was young and, you know, to capitalism, neoliberalism. And I think it's almost the absence of care and how it traumatizes people. And we never talk about that. No, it's a paradox in a way. On the one hand, there is a complete uh, cauterization of our sensitivities in a capitalist system. You know, it really riles me, and I'm sure you as an educator, where our managers are now wanting us to view students as customers. And we can talk about things like the customer experience, which is absolute bollocks. I mean, we're not here as uh, providers of, of a service. We're here as educators. But on the one hand, capitalism, neoliberalism, it, it, it removes that sense of care and we've all got to turn ourselves into mini entrepreneurs and we've all got to make our own way and all that kind of Thatcherite bullshit. But at the same time, the capitalist system as we currently have is dependent upon care as well. The yes. Unpaid, the unpaid, yeah. In the home, and that's why that feminist analysis, and it's, you know, it's no surprise that you mentioned Kathleen, that was always at the feminist analysis in terms of, mm. You know, on the one hand, we're excluding the unpaid work of women, without which our societies would not function. You know, that is the, you know, that reproductive work that's absolutely central to a a functioning human society is completely erased. Our GDP tells us nothing about that or the volunteer activity that many people get involved in or the activist work you and I are involved in. That does not figure in what's officially seen as as the metric of measuring progress and development in our society, which is why... I am a post-growth economist. We need to move beyond this bullshit term of GDP as measuring anything meaningful in our society. And I, like you, started from a position of that care. I was always curious, why is it the unpaid work, mostly of women in the home, of volunteer activity in our communities, you know, people volunteering the GAA or the church or political activism, all of which adds to the vibrancy and, you know, the structure of our society. I was always curious because I was, I was, you know, taught by some horrible neoliberals in UCD in the in, in the mid eighties. Uh, people like Moore McDowell, who's Michael McDowell's brother, absolute bollocks of uh, a neoliberal. Um, and I remember sitting there. I love the way you say it as it is. <laughs> I just remember this, is like nineteen eighty five or so, uh, being appalled because I was surrounded from working class area of North Dublin, Millbrook and Kilbarrick is where I'm from. And I was surrounded like a lot of working class kids where by strong women, 
uh, in our community uh, who kept our, our place safe and they watched out for us and so on. And so I always, I always appreciated that, maybe because I was, I was lucky, I was surrounded by, in my family, a lot of strong women who I seen doing not only paid work, but also this unpaid work. And then going in and being ideologically indoctrinated in economics by saying that none of that, ha- none of that matters. I just viscerally rejected this notion that everything had to be monetized and so on. And therefore, you know, I think this is a really important discussion about why can't we have care, compassion and kindness? Why can't we have that as the measure of progress in our societies and not this bullshit idea of gross domestic product? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, you know, looking to signs of hope that I think there is something more profound happening in this um, ridiculed concept of snowflake, the snowflake generation, uh, which is a rejection of the work as live to work as opposed to live to live yeah, and live to be and live to care and yeah. live to love yeah, but it's and also, live to be free. Yeah, but it's also about, you know, um, seeing that the economy is there to serve society. At yeah, the moment, it's yeah. completely skewed the other way around, where we are sacrificing at the altar of efficiency, of growth, or uh, foreign direct investment, or whatever, so many of the things that make our societies meaningful. You know, that to me is um, our biggest challenge, beyond all the other things we can talk about, is that we we have, in a way, gravitated our society and structured it around this idea of consumerism, which, of course, is another issue that we need to talk about because people forget that it's usually debt-based consumerism. You know, it's not that people are buying stuff. Debt as in borrow, borrowing-related. And, 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 of course, when people are in debt... It's also debt-based as well. It is. I mean, you look at the origins <laughs> Consumerism of it. kills us and it kills it people is. who produce it. It is, but that, that debt-based... Um, the point I was going to make is that it, uh, it reduces and disciplines the capacity of a people to be politically active. When you're in debt, it, it constrains you. It has a mental uh, impact on your life and so on. That's why, you know, it's a very traumatizing film to watch. But I, Daniel Blake, in a way, really brings out that sense, the way in which poverty is not just a material condition. It also is a mental health uh, issue. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that again, Gabor Mate talks about that. And I actually write about that in my new book, um, the the updated version of GAFs um, on specifically. And, and I wrote about it in GAFs as well, about the chronic stress. And I talk about it in housing that, that um, there's, you know, you will hear talk about chronic stress at work, but no one talks about chronic stress of housing or chronic stress of poverty. And this you, you're well aware, I know, of, of the spirit level and the work of Wilkinson and Pickett on the whole epidemiology of stress and how stress, chronic stress that is out of your control is deeply destructive to your immune system yeah. um, and, of course, then to children in terms of child development. And, of course, it's directly related things like poverty, housing insecurity um, and... You know, it's something you know, I've reflected on, you know, my own upbringing. There was a lot of uh, chronic financial stress when I was growing up. And, you know, I know it impacted on me. Um, and over extended periods of time, it was, you know, traumatic, the levels of it in the household that were being experienced. And it, it it's something, again, that 
we don't talk about, but we're increasingly becoming aware of. And I do think, again, back to a change that's happening coming from younger generations um, who are seeing this, the trauma, the, you know, the understanding of mental health and bringing that dimension into, you know, our living. And I think it goes from climate to, you know, poverty, to housing, um, to inequality. And there is, I think, increasingly a rejection of neoliberalism and capitalism. But the problem is, young people I'm talking to, there's a lot of sense of despair. No, They understand it, but they don't see a hope. And therefore, they just, they don't engage in the activism and the change that's, that's sort of those pressure. I mean, it is. I mean, people will probably be familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the, and the very top one is security, a sense of feeling secure. And of course, a home is a central, you know, obviously a loving relationship, or if you're a child, a loving, you know, family relationship and so on. But that issue of security, I think we, we underestimate. And of course, neoliberalism trades upon insecurity, you know, in terms of precariously paid work, you're in competition with other workers because your job is not secure. We're uh, insecure about our body shape or the, or the consumer goods that we have because we're comparing ourselves to one another. But I do think, you know, the issue that you raised there, it's the question I get most commonly asked, particularly when I do public talks, what can I do? You know, it's mm-hmm. that issue that people, um, you know, they, they may have some idea. It's usually an individual idea. It's a lifestyle choice when it comes to the climate. And I say, listen, that's not going to cut it. You recycling more or even cycling more is not going to... Re- this is a political issue that requires collective political action. But there, it, to me, certainly because I teach on climate and ecological issues for the last 30 years, I've had to put uh, mental health warnings on the modules I teach. So I have, you know, usually the first few pages of the module say, listen, the issues we're dealing with here are going to be quite um, maybe traumatizing or anxiety-provoking for you. Please monitor your own mental health. And I've had students, often female students, after I taught them and said, well, thanks very much for your module, or sometimes I didn't enjoy it or whatever. But then they say to me, I've decided not to have children. Yeah. That really hits me. I mean, I don't know what to do with that. I, I don't set out to make my students, who are already probably anxious about the climate issue anyway, uh, make them any more anxious. But I think what I do in the courses and the public meetings I go to and speak at is to remind people that uh, an exacerbator of their underlying anxiety about the climate issue is the absolute lack of government action and this kind of neoliberal individualized responses. You know, buy an electric vehicle, put solar panels on your house, get a heat pump or cycle or put, you know, salad on window boxes. I mean, that's just absolute crap. We need a state-led response of retrofitting people's homes of, of providing people with basic services from healthcare to transport to housing that takes it out of the commodity form. Um, that's what I'm interested in. And, you know, I'm not saying everybody's going to agree with that, but there is no plug and play version of a sustainable future. There's no app. There's no technological fix. This has to be at a fundamentally restructuring of our society. And just to conclude, my view now as a long term socialist and indeed even a Marxist. Um, is that we now have functional reasons for a socialist planned economy. It's not just ideological, that there's absolutely no way from a scientific functional point of view we can make the transition to a low-carbon, high-human-flourishing society without a planned element of our economy, not about everything, but certainly on those you know central issues of housing, 
of healthcare, of food, of energy and transport. In my view, it, it, I, I've become more radical as I've got older, which is usually not the trajectory you go in. Usually, as they used to always say, as you get older, your waist gets thicker and your mind gets thinner. Well, I have to say my waist has got a bit COVID. I haven't had a good COVID. We've all put a few pounds on. But I found I've become even more radical as I get older because the evidence is just so compelling now, scientifically, functionally, for a, 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 a socialist planned economy. I, it's interesting, John. Um, the I, I don't think if it was possible for me to be any more radical than I was when I was in my twenties, but uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely at the the good old extreme end of uh, what was uh, been advocated around Marxism and socialism and all that, as you might well remember. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting how. Um, you're you're right, and 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 I have thought about it as well. That recently, um, that the necessity of structural systemic change, system change, has become more urgent than it, it than ever was as an activist. Like the argument that, and and I have to say, like my thinking has evolved over time, and my approach to, you know, being someone who is an anti-capitalist against capitalism that. I find it difficult to say, well, socialism is the alternative because I feel, well, I don't see any worked out pro, like, you know, clear alternative. But I do feel very clearly that there is a need to articulate and explain that there we need, clearly we need an alternative system than our market-based, unplanned, unregulated uh, growth, in, infinite growth and infinite consumption model we completely need an alternative and i'm starting from the basis of thinking through well what are the values of an alternative system and what should drive those and call it whatever you want and i think in a way the question you can debate over and back whether socialism is useful as the name or not but for me it is about the values that drive it and they are okay we need a system that is based on care as its driving value on um dignity of human beings on as you mentioned the and you you know your work is all about the environmental need and capacity of the planet um and essentially that that's it that's what you build your system on it's on cooperation it's on solidarity and if you built a system around those values we would have a completely different society economy than what we have now and, and sorry, and I would include in there the, the mental health aspect, one that actually is about genuine well-being. And I think there's something about trying to convince people, like if we build a system around those values, I think an overwhelming majority of people would support that idea. No, I think, you know, just on that issue, imagine having a dashboard of indicators to manage our economy and measure it. So it's not just GDP. I think it, there is a use even for that um, metric. But what about mental health? Uh, you know, what about uh, volunteering so that we're measuring all the, I mean, have the evidence. I mean, this is the thing, we have the evidence to be able to have these dashboards whereby we can, you know, determine that from a systemic point of view, uh, how our societies are are doing. And all that issue you mentioned there, Rory, in terms of care, compassion, you know, living in a sustainable way and focusing on human well-being. I think we have general policies that, and that's where my work is in terms of providing people. Now, whether you call it socialist or not, I, I'm not particularly bothered about, about the name. And, and it could be that for some people, that's an off-putting issue and we can talk about the framing. But for me, 
the idea that if I was to simply describe my vision of a, of, of a future society that's much more sustainable, it would be the socialization of consumption and the democratization of production. And what I mean by that is, is, is socialization of consumption is around things like universal basic services, that we decommodify key aspects of what we need for a decent human life, where the state uh, or social provision outside the market form is providing healthcare, housing, education. I do think there's a role for the market. You know, I'm not against, you know, a market in underwear or uh, consumer goods and so on. So it's not not a completely planned economy. But the key issues of our, that we need for a decent life, I think, have to be now taken out of the market system. And then the democratization of production is about, you know, the, the issue that always uh, and still puzzles me. For those who live in democracy, we say, well, why should democracy end at the factory gate? Why should democracy end at the office door? Or indeed, as educators, why should democracy end at the classroom door? About cascading democracy and self-organization and the voice of the people who are involved in the production of a service or a good, why can't they have a role in, in terms of ownership and control and voice in the organization of production? And to me, that's what makes me gravitate towards socialism. That's always been the socialist perspective of democratizing production but state or non-market or social provision then of the necessities of life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Listen, John, so much to think about. Um, it, just a last question, and I'll, I know um, listeners will really have enjoyed this uh, discussion and I'll definitely have you back soon. Um, and I have a, a live podcast coming up in Dublin on the 13th of December. I don't know if you're around. Um, you can check your diary. Would, would, I, would I be able to convince you to come down for it? I'll, I'll check the diary and if I'm free on there. Oh, that's great. Well, listen, I would definitely love to do this live um, with you. It would be really, really, really interesting and um, enjoyable. Uh, and talk about getting the band back together. Now, luckily, people will know neither of us. Can, well, you might be able to sing or play an instrument, can you? I can sing very badly, but I have a few scoops in me, and I wouldn't inflict that on people. No, I can't sing or, or dance um, so or play an instrument, so it's all talking. They, they can look forward to a chat. Um, but just the, the last question I wanted to ask you um, was, and people can check you out um, at the um, Frederick Douglass uh, Festival, which is on in Wexford this weekend, and I'll be chairing the panel that you're speaking on um, with a number of people who are looking at the environment and climate, and I'll also be speaking on a housing panel as well. Really looking forward to that. Um, and there are tickets still available for it. But John, just on the Green Party and politics, what's your reflection on being in politics as a way of bringing about change and the Green Party specifically? Well, I was a, a Green Party councillor here in the north for seven years. And uh, I, I look back at it now and sometimes think, what the fuck was I doing? It was a waste of time in terms of real political change doesn't happen in council chambers or, um, uh, you know, official bourgeois uh, democratic fora. Now, I'm being very harsh both on bourgeois democracy and, and perhaps myself, but I, partly for reasons I won't have time to go into now, I didn't get a chance to do what I wanted to do, which is to use the platform of, of having an electoral mandate to um, organise communities that I was representing. I spent far too long serving the system going to committee meetings, reading all the documents. And it's a fantastic way of, in a way, um, reducing one's political energy that you spend so much time, a bit like ourselves as educators. I want to teach, I want, I want to talk to people, 
We spend so much time fucking admin and bullshit meetings, which is sapped the energy out of you. So I had a similar experience as a as a local politician. Now, I did do some good in terms of helping people with housing issues and meeting their immediate needs, but I completely failed, partly because the, the, the Greens up here, they're much more left-wing than our colleagues down south for a start, but we're too small. We didn't have enough bodies on the ground to organise. And that was the key lesson I had, I had learned. And the reason why I was vociferously against the Greens going into government uh, with a right-wing coalition of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. I, I wouldn't be on Eamon Ryan's uh, Christmas list. I'm probably as welcome as a fart in a spacesuit in Green Party circles. My view was we should absolutely not go in to coalition government with a right-wing coalition. Look what happened last time when people forget the Greens went to the government last time, not just with Fianna Fáil, but the fucking PDs, the most successful and horrible party this island has ever seen. And, and in a way, there's a lesson there, probably a part on what are the lessons to be learned uh, from a neoliberal party like the PDs that were small, but they infected the, the Irish body politic in a, in a way which was remarkable. They were a revolutionary party, but sadly, mm-hmm. a right-wing revolutionary party that was extremely successful. So my view, uh, and I was very public, I was interviewed by RTE at the time, about, and I was absolutely against the party going into government. What the party should have done with the, with the mandate that it, that it had, you know, 12 TDs, was to organise their communities, use the resources that they now have with 12 elected TDs to really deliver on local climate action and organising communities for the, what we now see, these terrible floods happening across the island. Climate change is literally now with the, with the water lapping at our feet. So in my view, I'm still a member of the party. I, I sometimes question why particularly because, for listeners who may not know, we're an all-island political party like Sinn Féin or the Workers' Party, and I was instrumental in that in 2006. I was leader of the party here in the north, and I said there was no point. Why would you have two green parties on an island? The the, the environment respects no borders. Part of me sometimes regrets that, because while most of my colleagues here in the north are much more on the the left and more eco-socialist, Whereas literally it's the Finnegan on bikes phenomenon down south, incredible middle class, guilty middle class kind of phenomenon that you get in the party down south. Not not completely. That I feel like it's almost like a football team supporter. You know, you pick your team and you stay with them, although sometimes I, 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 I do doubt uh, staying within the party. But then I have to say, well, it's my job as a member of this party to try and change it, uh, you know, to use uh, whatever position I have. And I've not done that, partly because the academic work and other things I'm doing have taken away my, my, my energies. So I'm absolutely appalled at the Greens being in government, to be honest with you. It is not enough to say, oh, we, we've increased bicycle lanes and we have more retrofitting uh, money for houses and so on. Is that when you stack that up against what we see this government has done, it doesn't justify these modest gains. And as I say, just to finish, particularly... For the party not to use the, the resources of the state, the, even if they're in government now, why aren't we seeing them using the resources to be subversive? To say that actually what we need to do now is to completely change our economy and society rather than what I think is probably in the mind of most Green Party TDs and indeed many members is a kind of middle class biofueling the Hummer strategy. That's simply a green energy transition is the best we can do in terms of the climate crisis, which is not the issue. The issue is not just carbon, it's capitalism. Yeah. 
Listen, well said. John, absolutely uh, fascinating and really enjoyed the discussion. And people, as I said, can check you out. Uh, we'll be down at Wexford on this coming weekend, which is the 25th. There's a festival um, ongoing over the it's running from wednesday until um which i think the podcast is going out today wednesday november 22nd um it's going wednesday thursday friday saturday and sunday on friday evening the keynote is with fatan al-tamami and senator francis black which is um uh, all are welcome that it requires booking then we've the environmental panel which is november the 25th the saturday running from 11 to 12 30 john you'll be there um, i'm chairing it we'll have activists and experts and then there is a children's workshop with the red moon creative arts theater 11 to 12 with the housing panel then with myself and others at two o'clock um, and there's actually a mental health wellness workshop on at four o'clock um, and that is being facilitated by uh, experienced community mental health workers. And on Sunday, then, they have migrant worker exploitation, a new form of modern slavery at noon, and a community food event then at 3 o'clock. Um, and they have an arts night on the Saturday night, so people can check that out. That is the... Um, Frederick Douglass Civil Rights Festival in Wexford. You can go to wexfordartscentre.ie, douglasinwexford.com to get tickets and check it out. And John, listen, thank you so much. Keep up the great work. And hopefully we might see you in Dublin on the 13th. Our live podcast is in the Teachers Club on December the 13th. And finally, the final notice is if you are in Dublin this weekend, please, please try get out and join, uh, enjoy, join the demonstration, the protest uh, for Palestine, one o'clock through Dublin. John, thanks so much. Talk to you soon.